This is Effed Up, a conversational podcast about injustice, true crime, and rosé. Season one of Effed Up is a story about the corruption in one state's crime lab. Listeners are advised that this podcast contains opinions that are our own. Hello. Hi. Welcome. Hi. 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 To Welcome episode back. five. We're in episode five. Five. Cheating is fucked up. Part two. Electric Boogaloo. Whoop, whoop, whoop. I'm Jessica Borges. I'm Priya Hubbard. I'm Keith Burke. So how are you guys doing? Great. <laughs> Everything's <laughs> fabulous. Everything's great. We have rosé. It could be worse. Yes. We, at least we have rosé. We yeah. have rosé. So and things are okay. Last week was Keith's birthday, and we celebrated and had the best fucking time. Yeah. We're all still hungover. Oh, yep. yep. Still recovering. Because we're old. Never drinking again <laughs> after I Except have this glass. Cheers! Cheers. Cheers. Never drinking again. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's so, get caught up. Yeah. Okay. So getting up to speed where we kind of left off, Greg Taylor was exonerated. Things are getting chaotic. Two former FBI agents were called in to audit the lab. The local paper was releasing numerous articles detailing how effed up the lab was. Or fucked up. Or fucked up. They're still fighting about that. (laughs) To the death. (laughs) 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 And Jennifer and her estranged husband, Kirk Turner, a successful dentist, had gotten into an argument on September 12, 2007. He claimed he killed her in self-defense after she stabbed him twice in the leg with a decorative spear. He was charged with her murder, but prosecutors needed tangible evidence to move forward. But would they? Find out right this very second on the second part of Cheating is Effed Up. Okay, so on January 15th, 2008, Gerald Thomas met with SBI Special Agent Dwayne Deaver. Remember him? Oh, he's my favorite. Yeah. He's a peach. (laughs) Good old Dwayne. Yeah. And he also met with Chief Deputy Jerry Hartman who we also talked about in the last episode, as well as a lawyer from the DA's office and the DA's investigator. They were trying to find evidence proving that Kirk had intentionally slashed his wife's throat with a pocket knife he alleged he always carried. So one small detail worth noting is the fact that Deaver and Assistant District Attorney Brown hadn't actually seen the shirt yet. So the shirt that was like under, that was... Oh, the one that had the blood on Mm -hmm. it? Like the hand swipe? Yes, exactly. They'd only ever seen a photo of the shirt. So once they saw the shirt in person, they pretty quickly noticed the pointed tip in the bloodstain on the t-shirt, which Priya is going to show you right now. And we're going to put this on our social media. Yeah. So so people at home will get to see this t-shirt as well. So what we're showing right now is a cutting that they took to do a test on this t-shirt. Well, it sort of looks like it fits into the hole where... Like there's a clean spot where the, there's not blood, which mm-hmm. looks to be the same shape as the entire knife. Right. And that actually is really important. Like it almost just was placed on it as opposed to, or. It looks like it, he could be wiping He could off be wiping it, but it also seems to also be the entire like shape of it. Yeah. yeah. Like it was just placed on top of it. Interesting. Yeah. Yes. So it looks like the shape of a knife and they developed a theory, which was that Kirk killed Jennifer with his pocket knife wiping the knife on his shirt, then As staged, we just discussed. Yeah. Then staged the scene by ramming the 18-inch blade through his thigh twice. 
Thomas no longer believed it to be a stain consistent with the bloody hand being wiped on his shirt, which is what he had written in his initial report. Just for argument's sake, allegedly, if you're the person that's doing this and you're having to inflict wounds on yourself. So the killer, you're, you're saying... Yeah. Okay. But like, or maybe he's just an idiot. But like, if you're going to injure yourself, I mean, like, maybe not do it in a place that might actually kill you. If you're just trying to like, oh, look, I'm wounded. Yeah. Like, cut your cut your forearm. Yeah. I think see, that seems weird to me. Twice, yeah. I think that the lead defense attorney, Joe Cheshire, had actually spoken with somebody... I don't know if it was a doctor or a psychologist or whatever, but like the psychology behind being able to stab yourself twice like that thoroughly. Because it it wasn't just like, you know, a a little stab here and a little stab there. It was an all the way through the leg. Like it came out the other side of the leg. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's. See that detail? I did not have that detail last episode. So, <laughs> like, so he literally harpooned himself twice. If that's the theory you're supposed allegedly. to believe, that's, allegedly, this is the theory that the, theory the that prosecution he, has come up with, and that you've got to be a like extra. Let me show you oh, is it, is the it a, jeans. Oh, that he was wearing. Me. So these are the two stab holes. Okay. Now let me show you another Just one. Just don't show me. I don't want to see the wound. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. Okay. None of. I've these are the PG versions. through Blah. these photos. Oh, that's new information. Because <laughs> to me, it, it... So this is what it looks like. Yeah, right. So the photo that I'm showing Keith right now is jeans, the jeans that Kurt Turner was wearing, and the two, the point of entry and the point of exit of the spear. But do you have enough, like, just from the angle, like, yeah. force... Like yourself, because to, to, that goes through like yeah. A how, lot. Was he Muscle. a big guy? I mean, he was maybe on par like, with Jennifer, who was five eleven and one eighty. Yeah, I mean that's decent. I mean, so that's like I mean that's a good amount of like thigh to get through twice. Yes. Okay, that seems. Are you a changing your opinion a little well, bit? A little bit, because that seems like but well, that twice. you have just enough force yourself to be able to drive through your entire leg. I think you do it once. Pull it out and then do it again. See, he looks like he's not overweight, but he's not a super thin guy. I have big thighs. Like that's that's a lot to get through. through. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that's new information that kind of skews my opinion a little bit. Anyway. All right. All right. Carry on. So Gerald Thomas no longer believed it to be a stain consistent with a bloody hand being wiped on the shirt, like he had written in his initial report. Now he believed it was a knife being wiped across the shirt. How convenient. Yeah. So no longer a hand, but a knife. knife. So in September of 2007, he had written in his report that it seemed like it was a hand just being wiped off. Okay. And now that you've seen it, you see sort of like the tip. Right. It looks like a blade. And it looks like a blade. But he still hadn't seen the shirt at this point. He was looking at a picture. No, Gerald Thomas had seen the shirt. Oh, this yeah. was, okay. Yeah. It was the ADA and Dwayne Deaver who had oh, no. not seen the shirt. They'd seen photographs, gotcha. as far as I can understand it. Otherwise, you know, on January 15th, what are they even fucking talking about? Exactly. Yeah. There's going to be a trial, as we have already right. 
figured out. And in April of 2009, prosecutors supplied defense attorneys with some discovery, including Thomas's new interpretation of the blood evidence that Kirk Turner had killed his wife and wiped his knife on his t-shirt. The defense attorneys, the Dream Team, Joe Cheshire and Brad Bannon, hired their own forensic experts, a renowned bloodstain pattern analyst named Stuart James and Marilyn Miller. She's an associate professor in the Department of Forensic Science at Virginia Commonwealth University. She's a fucking forensic badass. Mm -hmm. And we talked with her for our last episode as well. But don't forget that Kirk Turner is the successful white dentist dude. So he made a lot of money and he has the money to hire extravagant things like forensic specialists. So both Stuart James and Marilyn Miller completely disagreed with Thomas's analysis that it was a bloody knife being wiped on a t-shirt. What did they um, think it was? They thought it was a blood stain that's referred to as a mirror stain. So when like a piece of fabric folds together, the blood will bleed into the other side that it's touching. It's transferring it's, it's, from yeah. the bloody patch right here onto the fresh piece of fabric that exactly. hasn't been touched yet until it okay. gets crumpled. Right. So Marilyn and Stuart James, Stuart James was hired to do the blood stain analysis and Marilyn was hired to do reconstruction of the crime scene and what had happened. But Marilyn had had experience in blood stain analysis, so she was helping Stuart James out. So they decided that it was most likely this mirror stain that was created by folding the shirt when the EMTs had cut off oh, the shirt. Oh, after the fact. Right. So they're like trying to save his fucking life because like the stab wound is right near his femoral artery. So they cut off his jeans. They cut off his t-shirt and toss them to the side because they're just trying to deal with life-saving measures. So Stuart James wrote an expert opinion about what he thought had happened. He and Marilyn had decided this. It got forwarded to the prosecutors, this expert opinion. Like, they're okay. going to understand that this is what the defense is saying about the evidence that is being presented. Gerald Thomas claimed that the assistant district attorney asked for additional testing to disprove that the blood stain on Turner's shirt was a mirror image. So the ADA... How would you dispr- How would you do that? Well, that's where the FBI oh. comes in. Oh, Jesus. Here we go. Okay. Gerald Thomas also sent an email to a colleague in the FBI in May of 2009. So this is a month later. And he promised that he would conduct tests to shore up. These are his words. Shore up his conclusions. As in, like, I'm going to prove my theory... But that's not how science works. No. The scientific method is you do experiments and then based on those results, you come to a conclusion. Right. Not the other way around. Right. So he and his boy, Dwayne Deaver, needed to match the theory to the science. I think the word you're looking for is shady. Yes. So they got a replica knife and performed reconstruction tests using blood and gray t-shirts. You saw that Kirk was wearing a gray t-shirt. So similar to what Kirk had been wearing the night he and his wife stabbed each other, this was to determine if they could replicate the pattern that was on the gray t-shirt, Kirk's shirt. The News and Observer reported about this, and this is what they said. 
A video of their work, as in Dwayne Deaver and Gerald Thomas, shows that twice Thomas donned a clean shirt. Each time he dipped a knife in blood, careful to get blood only on the edges. He carefully wiped the blade on his shirt in an attempt to leave a stain that resembled the outline of the knife. Okay. The second attempt was more pleasing to Deaver, who was filming. His comments, audible on the video, were more film director than scientist. What he said at the end, which you're about to hear, is, Oh, even better. Holy cow, that was a good one. Beautiful, that's a rat baby. Which is exactly what you want to hear from a scientist performing tests. Yes, that, but also like if you stab somebody and a a knife goes inside them, you're not only going to get blood on just the edge. You know what I mean? Like it would be on the entire knife. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to go into Marilyn Miller's assessment of this because you just brought this up. Okay. So... I spoke with her a couple of weeks ago. Would and Marilyn think I'm a genius? Yeah. She would. So I asked Marilyn if she'd seen the video of Gerald Thomas and Dwayne Deaver experimenting with how the V-shape of the knife had been made. Okay. Or might have been made. She saw it once. She barely remembers it. She does remember Thomas trying to get blood only on the edges of the knife. <laughs> and I'm, I'm high-fiving myself. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> and she said that what she would have done is dip the knife into like a pool of blood right. or like a bowl of blood. Like as if that's going into a body. Mm-hmm. Right. And then wipe it to see what it's like because it would be very odd to have that like vacant space. Yeah. Anyway, so you're <laughs> the smartest man on earth. She also criticized another thing that she remembers about. Gerald Thomas testing these t-shirts is that he wore brand new t-shirts and the t-shirt that was that Kirk Turner was wearing was an old t-shirt. So it's going to respond to the blood in a different way. A new t-shirt, a brand new, like straight out of the package t-shirt. The fabric is going to respond in a different way that, than an old t-shirt would. So that was something I hadn't even thought of. Yeah, I wouldn't think about that. And I asked her what she would have done. She said, I would have laundered it like hundreds of times until it had the same consistency as the t-shirt that I was testing. And I was like, this is why scientists should be doing this shit and not Keith and Priya. (laughs) And Jess. Science. I feel like you would have thought of it. (laughs) Science. So what concerns her or what concerned her the most was the experimental bias Thomas had used, which is something that you brought up. He saw like a line of blood here and a line of blood here. So obviously to him, the blood is only up the on the top of the knife and the bottom of the knife. He had the end result. Right. And then was working backward because that's, yeah, not, that's, how not, science that's not how science works. Right. This is the science we're working with here. Should we start doing science in quotes? Yes. Because it's not really... I haven't done science since high school, but it seems very unsciencey. So while all of these shenanigans are going on, Kirk is out on bond. And on May 13th, 2009, Thomas wrote a supplementary report to his September 14th, 2007 report. Okay. Basically summarizing how these experiments refuted the defense experts' finding of a stain caused by folding the shirt. 
So Stuart James and Marilyn Miller were like, right, right, this right, was right. a mirror stain. And they're saying, and they're saying, no, look it. at our, look, it's like a hand wifey and like a, yeah. Okay. Got it. Yeah. They're saying, yeah, with a knife. Can I just also point out that they did test on the shirt. So what they're looking at, I don't have a, a photo of the t-shirt crumpled up, but this is what the jeans looked like crumpled up and it lo- and it's just like tossed in a corner so it could easily have folded over right yeah so here they folded it over and they're like measuring the stain and they're testing out their theory and this is what they send back to gerald thomas yeah. like oh because it lines up we'll put that on the on our social media as well yes Priya's making scary face I'm which not means looking, so. i don't want to see it oh look wine <laughs> <laughs> some of the photos had things in it that made this suddenly very, very real as in Jennifer's body, the blood, the right, like everything that it humanizes it. It yeah. really, really humanizes it. And we are sort of jocular on this podcast and it, yeah. that in no way is meant to take away from what. No, not at all. It's just, everyone has a different way of processing and it's, you know, we're talking about like heavy and grim stuff, you know, obviously this is supposed to educate and like, bring about change and things like that. But also it's like, I don't know, you want to tell it with a little bit of like humor. And so it makes it easy, a little bit easier to swallow yeah, in a way so that you can like. Just not- a spoonful of sugar. Yeah. Yeah. It was really rough seeing the reality yeah. of what we're, we are actually talking about. Yeah. Well, here. you are better than I, cause I do not want to see that. I'll, no, no, I'll leave my either. rose colored glasses on. And- <laughs> Thomas's conclusion from these tests were that the blood stains on the shirt were made from a pointed object being wiped on it. In early May of 2009, Thomas had a phone call with Hartman from the sheriff's office. Thomas and Hartman had a brief conversation. So remember how in episode three, the lab is effed up. We talked about the fact that calls between analysts and law enforcement, prosecutors, defense lawyers, et cetera, require written reporting. I don't know if you remember that, but we did touch on that. Right. So Thomas actually did report this phone call that he had with Hartman. Good job. You did one thing right. Let's. Okay. (laughs) Bravo. So Thomas added it to his supplementary report, the record of the phone call. And Thomas wrote that Hartman told him that he was present when EMTs removed Kirk's shirt. And that. That's new information. The question bloodstain was present on the shirt at that time. He wrote that Hartman told him that he took the bloody shirt and laid it flat on the ground to dry so that any stain wouldn't be impacted by folding or handling it as it was still wet. So that's important to remember. And on July 8th, 2009, Brad called... That seems suspect. (laughs) Yeah. It's the SBI. Uh Uh-huh. The Suspect Bureau of Investigation. Ooh. Ooh. Trademark. (laughs) (laughs) On July 8th, 2009, Brad Bannon called Thomas into his office because he wanted copies of all of Thomas's files. In a previous episode, we discussed how analysts were discouraged from speaking with defense attorneys. Brad had asked permission from the DA's office and was granted it. Good job. Yeah, which is great. So he seems to be doing some things by the book. Well, Brad, Brad. 100%. He, oh, yeah. sorry. Sorry. Brad, I thought you were talking about the other guy. It. Yeah. So Brad asked permission from the DA's office and was granted it. Thomas also checked in with ADA Brown to see if that was okay, and he got the go-ahead. Okay. So Thomas brought the copy of his complete file to Brad's office. They had a short exchange, and then Brad dug in, calling through all of the documents. 
So as he's going through everything, something ends up catching his eye. In these documents was a completed report, ostensibly the same report that Thomas completed on September 14th, 2007. That's the initial report. Mm -hmm. Okay. Brad had his own copy of that report from the initial discovery, but something seemed different in this report that Thomas had just given him. Brad noted that the first report had the numbers 24, 25, and 26 along the upper right-hand corners of the report pages. This seemed to be a numeric value given to the documents during the discovery process. Oh, like page 24? Okay. Yeah. The second report that Brad had just gotten had the same title as the first report, which was Examination of Clothing for Bloodstain Patterns on Friday, September 14th, 2007. Both reports were prepared by Thomas. There were numerical values given in this report also, but they were different. They were 1441, 1442, and 1443. So not 24, 25, and 26, yet ostensibly they seem to be the same report. Right. Is that right? At first glance, yeah. Okay. I'd be like, it's the same thing. But why are those numbers different? Yeah, why are those numbers different? So in this, quote, new report, Thomas's opinion about Kirk Turner's shirt had changed. Nothing else in the report was different, only this one line. The initial report referred to the bloodstains on the shirt being consistent with a transferred bloodstain pattern from a bloody hand being wiped on it. As we've discussed yeah. right. at length. Mm -hmm. And the new report referred to the bloodstain being consistent with the pointed object, a knife. So he's changed this report, but it has the same date on it. So it's not like a supplemental report. It's not well, that's like... that's what I was going to say. Like you can... Yeah, as you... Like people make mistakes and when you do further testing, things can change. But if you haven't... Like you can't just go with whiteout and go like... Yeah. That changed that. Mm -hmm. You have to do like an addendum or like a supplemental report. And there are actually... In the SBI, there are standards in place with regards to amending a report... And based on the language in this new report, a separate report should have been generated to document any additional yeah, like opinions, the, the findings, the my bad version, like Yeah. Or just like, hey, we changed our minds or we discovered X, Y, or something that shows the evolution of the report. And then like you need reasoning to back it up. But right. this, in this instance, there was no such thing. Like I understand why they try to sneak that by. It's because then it looks like, oh, well, you're introducing possible doubt. Because right. we weren't 100% sure and we changed our mind. So we're just pretending that there was no reasonable doubt. This is the report and that's what it is. Yeah. This is the theory that we've been going with the, the entire whole time. The whole time. Yeah. yeah. We've never wavered. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So basically when Thomas's opinion changed, he should have created a new document with a new date. And then so basically keep... A record. A record of it. Yeah. Yeah. So also in looking through the supplemental reports, Brad found the notes on the phone call between Thomas and Hartman something we had mentioned earlier, right. something didn't strike him as being right with that as well. And he decided to ask Thomas about it at trial. Okay. Most importantly, though, Brad was worried that if the defense team hadn't received the first documents early in discovery, they would have never had any idea that Thomas changed his opinion in this document. Oh, right. Because yeah. he asked for this stuff. They wouldn't, mm -hmm. it wasn't volunteered. And I contend that a lot of defense attorneys might have missed the details and differences in the two reports. In fact, as you just mentioned, Brad was the one who had to fucking ask for the file. Right. And if he hadn't, who knows what would have happened. So the reality of the situation, as we discussed a little bit earlier, is that a man is on trial for murdering his estranged wife. Right. And I may have my own issues with Kirk Turner of house infidelity, but that doesn't necessarily make him a murderer. Nevertheless, here we are, and Kirk Turner is on trial. So our gal, 
Marilyn Miller was brought in as an expert witness in forensics. She had examined Kurt's jeans from that night, specifically the front pocket where he kept his pocket knife. Okay. And inside that pocket, there was blood transfer. Not a bleed through of blood, but transfer. A stain that indicated that Kirk had blood on his hand and reached into his pocket with the blood on his hand, and that blood had transferred onto the fabric. So he was stabbed on the left-hand side of his body, mm-hmm. and on the right-hand side of his body, he reached into his pocket where there was no blood. Okay. Was that blood in the pocket his own blood, or was it hers? The blood was determined to be Kirk's only. So maybe he was like looking for car keys after he got stabbed. <laughs> Or he was grabbing his knife so he could defend himself. Oh, that makes more sense. (laughs) So the blood (laughs) was determined to be only his. There was no mixture of any other blood. So Jennifer's blood wasn't in there. Oh, so it wasn't like he was putting it away. Right. It was only his. So that supported that he'd been stabbed before he went in for his knife. So here is the pocket before Marilyn tested it. Okay. Or had it tested. She actually, she sent it out to a lab to test it. So you see their little cuttings out? Oh, yeah. That's where the... the, That's the thing they cut out to send it away. Yeah. To the pocket lab store. Right. Please. The the, 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 the pocket. (laughs) They only do jeans pockets. They only do small It's genetic testing. (laughs) Oh my God. Anyway, Gerald Thomas got on the stand, and Brad brought up this supplemental report from 2009, the one where Thomas had written that Hartman told him that he was there when the EMTs cut off the jeans and the t-shirt, right? and that Hartman had said that he was the one who put the clothing off to the side, and that he had said that he saw this pointed stain. Thomas confirms to Brad that this was the conversation 100% that he had with Hartman, except for... Oh, plot twist. You know that Brad got Hartman on the stand, right? Mm-hmm. You know that Hartman, or that, that Brad asked every question of Hartman that he asked of Thomas, and Hartman is like, eh, no, I did not say any of that. I said that I was not there when the EMTs arrived. I got there after the e- EMTs arrived. The, the clothing was you know, crumpled. Yeah, he'd get that, it from the sheriff's office, Which right? would fit the mirror. He, what he actually did is he laid the clothing flat himself because the clothing was still wet with the blood and it needed to dry out. So in that shed, whatever the fuck it is, he laid out the clothing flat, but he didn't, like the clothing was crumpled up and there were photographs to support that as we've already seen. Right. So why did... And why did that guy get up there and lie? What, did Thomas get up there? Yeah. I mean... That's perjury. Thomas said that it was just a misunderstanding. You don't forget that somebody was... That's bullshit. And it was in his written report. Mm-hmm. He wrote down the conversation in As his he was report. On a phone call with him. In the supplemental report, he wrote down the conversation he had with Sheriff Hartman and what Sheriff Hartman had allegedly said to him. But it's just a misunderstanding. How's it, if it never happened, how is that a misunderstanding? Well, they did actually have that conversation. Just, that's just not what he said. Oh, sorry. Dialogue. I thought it was, he made up the entire he, conversation. No, 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 no. 
Yeah, they did talk. It just was like. Very I mean, he did make up the entire conversation. I, I mean that it happened, but he didn't yeah. make up makeup. Yeah, gotcha. Brad then asked Thomas. So Thomas is still on the stand. He asked Thomas if there was any indication that his initial report was not complete. Clearly, his report was not complete because he amended it on January fifteenth, two thousand eight, or whenever. Thomas said there was was not any indication that he changed it. So great, he's telling the truth. So Brad really drills into Thomas on the stand. He wanted to know how a defense attorney could be able to understand whether or not Thomas was reinvestigating or thinking of reinvestigating or talking with DAs and sheriff's departments or setting up meetings to discuss theories based on his notes. Thomas tries to evade this. Brad finally asks him point blank and Thomas is like, yeah, I have I have no notes on any conversations I had with any of these people. So Brad asks, you were talking about experiments that you do that are set up and designed to prove theories. Is that correct? Thomas responds, yes. Brad asks, it is important to record what those theories are, isn't it? Thomas responds, I have them in my head. I know what theory I'm trying to prove. Uh, okay. Just keeping them in your head. Right. So later on in the questioning, Bannon asks Thomas, can you produce any kind of handwritten notes or report or bench notes or sketches that reflect what you did on January the 15th of 2008? That is when he had the meeting with the ADA and, and Dwayne Deaver and Susie Barker, whoever the fuck he had a meeting with. I don't think Susie was there. She could have been. Who knows? Maybe she's jumping up and down. In the she's background. too busy high fiving people <laughs> on another case. <laughs> she's still psyched about it. <laughs> Thomas explains that he didn't notate, he didn't sketch, he just took photos, but that's okay because his initials are on the photographs. So anyone would know they're his and from his experiments. So he's taking so care of everything. Where's right? like the, Everything's the great. intake list of evidence? Well, wait, all wait, the... wait, 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 wait. Oh, okay. Hang on. Brad then shows the photographs to Thomas, the ones that he was referring to, the ones where his initials are on them. So everybody's going to know exactly where they're from. Turns out, no initials. He literally just said, I organize it this way in this really great way. But then, no, he doesn't. Oh, that must have been real awkward. Oh, cool. Where's your initials? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I love them when white ink. They're in his head, guys. Oh, they're in his head. They're in his head. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> it's an invisible, it's a code. You don't have the same access. That you need that to get Nicolas Cage, <laughs> and then you can decipher the code. <laughs> yeah. So, this guy is a completely unorganized He's a hot mess. Like disaster. Yes. But no big deal, because we're just dealing with evidence from where a fucking person died. So, so that's the thing, like I said, I think it was last week, where I was like, why is no, why are these people not taking it more seriously? It's not yeah. like you're working at like, no. not that there's anything wrong working at a fast food restaurant, but like if you're working at a fast food restaurant, you're not working about life and death. Yeah, the stakes are a little bit like, lower. Yeah. No. You guys should like give a shit. So something what that- you do means whether somebody could potentially get the death penalty. Brad shows Thomas an envelope. He asked Thomas if it appears to be an envelope that Thomas used to hold a swabbing of blood. Thomas says yes. He asked Thomas, how does the envelope describe the swab? Meaning what's written on the envelope. Oh, like, right. Because you have you... to like, write the description. on. It's like one of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would make sense. I've seen those. 
Thomas says, blood sample from cardboard boxes. He asked Thomas, were you aware that there was more than one cardboard box seized from the scene that night or that day? Thomas says, yes, sir. Brad says, so by looking at this evidence envelope, I wouldn't have any idea which one of these boxes the sample was taken from, would I? No, sir. Not very big on attention to detail there, buddy. Mm -mm. People's lives. Yeah. But if I were a juror and I was hearing this, I'm like, this guy's a boob. Yeah. Like... How am I going to believe anything that these people are saying if this is the expert that you put up? Totally. Then Brad gets into that fucking report. Brad says, this is the second version of that report. Is that accurate to say? Tom says, yes. Brad says, now, does it say examination of clothing for bloodstained patterns on Friday, September 14th, 2007? Thomas says, yes. Brad says, it goes on to say, Friday, September 14th, 2007, at approximately 11 a.m., Special Agent Gerald Thomas arrived at the Davie County Sheriff's Office to examine clothing and other evidentiary items collected from a crime scene located at, then it states the purpose. Is that correct? Thomas says, yes. Brad says, does it say anything in that paragraph? Then I looked at the evidence again on January 15th, 2008. Thomas says, no. Brad says, is this the first version of this report in your file as it exists right now? Thomas says, no. Brad says, so you removed it from your file. Thomas says, I have amended the report. Brad says, now that's an interesting word, amended. Does it say anywhere on this document that this is an amended report? Thomas says, no, sir. Brad says, or a supplemental report? Thomas says, no, sir. So... This seems like little shit, Manusha. We've already said that we're talking about a man's life right right now. But that's not Manusha. That's like changing very specific information on the very initial report. Agreed. But I mean, I, I feel like there are people who would see it as Manusha. Oh, he, he changed a report. Like he changed his opinion. But the reality is he changed a fucking report in like a murder case. So all of this is important. Every single person working this case, the cops, the scientists, the judges, everybody has a fucking job to do to make sure the right people are going to prison for the crimes that have been committed. As you mentioned, Thomas is actually on stand as an expert witness. Right. An alleged scientist trained in the science of bloodstain pattern analysis. Jurors respect expert witnesses. Their testimony holds more weight than the average Joe. So they should probably be fucking experts. Yeah, he seems like an expert in BS. Yeah. Mm -hmm. On August 21st, 2009, the jury found Kirk not guilty. Oh. Of first degree murder of his wife by reason of self-defense. Great. It's interesting to note that it took six hours for the jury to deliberate Thomas's forensics didn't really come into play. He was the state's expert witness, and Brad decimated him and made him look as incompetent as he was. Thomas's video was shown, the one that you saw, and that will be posting. Oh, the experimental, like, look, I'm going to smear this way. That's a rat baby. And the jury got to hear about how Thomas basically changed a report to match what his higher-ups and prosecutors saw. Jurors really do love expert witnesses. It was independent scientist Marilyn Miller's testimony that the jury glommed onto about the right pocket and that the only blood she found there was Kirk's. And that's because it was sent to the special pocket lab yeah, this, investigator. For, for the, was it for, they did some genetic testing? <laughs> yes, they did genetic testing. I'm you this well, now one. I have to fucking keep that in. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, it's in, guys. <laughs> Great. But comedy gold. I thought so. 
Anyway, her testimony, the pocket, ended up being the key evidence in the case. Well, because that's, I mean, when you said that to me, that makes perfect sense. It's... The real science by a real goddamn scientist. Right. Because, well, it's also like, just when you, like, not put yourself in the experience, but just sort of like, when you logically think about like, what's the, it's that, what's that, Occam's razor, like, whatever the theory is, like the, the simplest, most, the simplest explanation, explanation is, is usually the correct explanation. Right. That like, is it this sort of, you know, crazy thing where he got harpooned twice and this, and then, you know, like, after killing, like, did it to himself, like, that doesn't make sense. It's such like a, what? Yeah. Like, I killed someone and then I think, oh, I had this genius idea. Let me take this giant thing and ram it through my leg twice. Right. That doesn't, like, right. I'm sure that could have happened. Yeah. But the simplest explanation is he was attacked and defended himself. And then when you look at the evidence, that evidence supports that theory as opposed to like, well, we have to make this like ridiculous thing make sense. So how are we going to find evidence to just support that theory? Yeah. Like when you put them next to each other, like, it's like, well, this sounds really like crazy and out there and not likely to happen or... Oh, this, yeah, that could happen. Oh, and you look at the evidence. Oh, yeah, the evidence supports that this could happen. Exactly. So when Marilyn and Stuart James walked into that, I, I think it was the, at the the sheriff's office is where the clothing was being stored. Yes. So they, they went there and they were looking at the clothing. I don't know if you remember the two photos of the jeans that – I showed you the two different pictures of the pocket. The first one was the pocket out yeah. and there was blood on it and yeah. there were no cuttings. You could cuttings. see there was in, on the inside and it was solid. There was no, it, nothing was cut out of it. Nothing was cut out of it. Yeah. Nobody had sampled it. Nobody in the SBI had sampled it. Gerald Thomas. Who oh, was geez, the, that make- <laughs> Nobody looked at it at all. Not doing anything with their genetic testing. Exactly. Certainly not. In fact, none of the reports from the state's expert witness, Gerald Thomas, even mentioned the bloody right pocket. Because they didn't care about that. Yeah. It didn't help. It didn't help their the theory. Yeah, exactly. exactly. That they had already determined. They just went around like the harpoon marks. So who the fuck is Gerald Thomas and what's his science background? Let's get into that. You want to know a little bit about where he came from? Sure. So Gerald Thomas was born June 18th, 1971 in Graham, North Carolina. In 2002, he graduated from Greensboro College with a Bachelor of Arts in History and Political Science. Oh, hey, that's science. Oh, wait. Political science. (laughs) (laughs) But in 2008, he got a Master's of Arts in Sociology from the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Still not science. Mm -hmm. Wait, wait, what is the Master of Arts in Art? Uh, Sociology. Master of Arts in Sociology. That's science-y. It's like the it's studying of people. Yeah. It's not, I wouldn't, yeah. That, I mean, that does not deserve a white lab coat. How is it going to help you in a lab? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. But there's more. So, <laughs> Wait, there's more. There's two, two, two degrees in one. <laughs> <laughs> so, from 1992 to 1999, he worked at the Liberty Police Department. Oh, he was a cop. cop. Oh, interesting. From 1995 to 1999, he was a detective with the Randolph County Sheriff's Office. Then, from 1999 until 2003, he was the Assistant Police Chief and Police Chief of Liberty PD. So, that is a grand total of 11 years of climbing the ladder in law enforcement. And after that, he joined the SBI. But his only science background includes 
a training that he did in a 40-hour basic bloodstain pattern analysis course that was taught by Dwayne Beaver and a woman named Jenny Elwell, amongst others. In addition, so in the, 2007... Oh, go ahead. He basically went to traffic school. <laughs> I mean, the traffic school version of like when you get... You take like a weekend course. Yeah. yeah. That seems like you need more skills. Mm. Mm. I would think. Yeah. Yeah. But in 2007, he took another similar course at Guilford Technical Community College. And in 2009, he took an online graduate level course from the University of Florida. So Thomas and all agents interested in bloodstain pattern analysis have to attend a minimum of three crime scenes and have them reviewed by others already conducting bloodstain pattern analysis. Deaver did most of Thomas's mentoring and reviewed most of his reports. Thomas documented about 10 scenes under Deaver's tutelage before Deaver wrote a memorandum that released Thomas to basically go out and work scenes on his own. So He, he only was, assisted on 10? And then he was free to go. They're only required to... Under the tutelage of yeah. Dwayne Deaver. But they're only required to assist on three. Yeah. With regards to the Turner case, it didn't occur to Thomas that it was a new opinion. And therefore, it would garner a new report. So did Thomas not write reports in his 11 years as a cop? Were they just allowed to erase things and put new shit in? Like, Yeah, that's like the my bad defense. That doesn't really work. Did they have to show their work? After all, in May 2009, he created a supplemental report. Rather than changing the original, he added new information, like that weird conversation he had with Sheriff Hartman. He completely added that. It seems a little willy-nilly, his ethics. And I I just don't buy that he doesn't know how to do this. And so let me, this non-lawyer, present Exhibit A. As of August 22nd, 2008, Thomas officially completed the North Carolina SBI Bloodstain Analysis Training Program. This is not a certificate program. Like, he probably received a letter confirming he completed the training program at the SBI. However, on his CV, as of 2010, he listed under his certifications, Bloodstain Pattern Analyst, North Carolina SBI 2008. So he said he got certified by North Carolina SBI, even though they don't have a certificate program. So he lied on his resume. Which we all probably have lied on our... Oh, for sure. Like my first bartending job, I gave my friend's number and he said I was a great bartender. Uh, Also, I wasn't trying to solve crimes. Yeah, you were just trying to serve drinks. I was trying to serve drinks poorly. Also, on his CV are six different testimonies he's purporting to have provided in six different cases. Kirk Turner's case was included among them. So he's like listing this Kirk Turner case where he provided expert testimony. Where as he looks like a moron. Yeah, I put, which girl, if I were him, I would not be referencing <laughs> yeah. something that included a video yeah. that made me a laughing mm-hmm. stock. That's like that show that we all done that's terrible. And we're like, oop, not putting that one on the resume. Just take that off, yeah. That one was a bust. <laughs> then there was another case that he put on there that he did technically provide uh, expert testimony insofar as his butt was in the chair on the stand. He was asked his name and he gave his name. The judge asked him what testimony he was going to be providing that day because the defense attorney did not want him to provide it. So the judge heard what the testimony was going to be, and it was this flawed science shit that the FBI was known for. And the judge was like, "Uh, nope, not going to testify. Get off the stand. So technically, he did sit on the stand. He gave his name. He did not provide expert testimony, however. But it's on his resume. 
So like, it's like actors that say they can like juggle on a horse ride and do accents. Just and they again, saw a movie like yeah. about it. <laughs> they in the grand scheme, in the grand scheme, it's not that big a deal. Mm-hmm. But he's in law enforcement. Yeah. He's mm-hmm. okay. In 2010, as the audit continued in the lab, more and more problems are being uncovered. The training that Deaver did is among the top concerns, but there are a fucking lot of concerns to be uncovered in this audit. In 2010, Marilyn Miller told the News and Observer that forensic scientists outside of North Carolina have long been concerned about examinations and testimony offered by Deaver and his protégés, but they felt powerless to do anything. He, meaning Deaver, is not a member of any associations. We can't censor him or demand that he change the way he works. He trains all these people, and it frightens me to think of the reach of his work. If Deaver and other problematic analysts are teaching these practices to other analysts, those other analysts will then go on to teach other analysts and other analysts these practices, yeah. and it will be like, so, Priya yeah. had said it'll be like the 80s Breck shampoo commercial. And so on, and so on, and so yeah, on. Yeah, it's like a yeah. perpetuating cycle. Right. Yeah. And as an example, we should mention here that Thomas also taught as well. On his CV, he... How did he teach? He didn't... <laughs> I mean... Carry on. <laughs> Answered my own question. <laughs> so his resume lists these courses that he taught, two of which are in crime scene investigation in 2005. And then from 2009 to 2000... Or sorry, from 2007 to 2009, he taught forensic science at Greensboro College in North Carolina. And he also taught a forensics course in 2010 at ITT Technical Institute, also in North Carolina. Oh, my God. And more. And in 2009, Thomas began instructing in bloodstain training classes at the SBI and became an evaluator for those participating in the training. So basically, the student became the master or something like that. So which is great. So while we agree with what Marilyn said, it's frightening to think of the reach of Deaver's instruction. It does go beyond the training. It goes to common sense and character. Thomas didn't label the photographs, despite saying that he di- he typically does that. And he didn't label the evidence swabs. Okay, so maybe he just makes like little mistakes here and there. Benefit of the doubt and all that. But he had an entire phone call with the deputy sheriff. And Hartman said that he did not handle Kirk's shirt until hours later. He did lie on his resume. He was not certified. Right. He changed a report significantly altering his opinion after speaking with the prosecutors without any indication of when and why he changed that report. This is the first day of forensic school stuff. It is simple scientific procedure, and it's against North Carolina statute 132-1.4 subsection J, which is quoted as saying, when information that is not public record under the provision of this section is deleted from a document, tape, recording, or other record, the law enforcement agency shall make clear that a deletion has been made. Nothing in this subsection shall authorize the destruction of the original record. Right. Make a supplemental report, dummies. Right. Mm -hmm. So simple. And by amending this report, he therefore destroyed the original. But it's against the law for any law enforcement official to do this. And he spent 11 years as a cop. So He should know better. Exactly. 100%. Yeah. Right. This statute impacts all law enforcement agencies, including the Liberty Police Department, where he climbed the ladder to police chief. But let's just say he didn't know it was illegal, and he did it. Whose fault is that? He's still the one who did it, right? Like, if I didn't know it was illegal to steal from someone, and I stole from someone, could that be my defense? Is simply not knowing an action is illegal okay? Is that excusable? 
So what if Marilyn hadn't testified? What if Stuart James hadn't been brought in? What if it wasn't a rich white man like Kirk Turner and it was someone who couldn't afford the dream team? And what if that person had an overworked, overburdened, underpaid public defender? Well, that person would absolutely be in prison for murder. Okay, so I read an article in the New York Times because I'm fancy as fuck. In the article were two really impressive quotes that really go to some of the impetus of why these analysts might do the things the way that they do. The first quote was by a professor of law and forensic science at George Washington University named James Starts, who said of these lab analysts, they analyze materials submitted on all but rare occasions solely by the prosecution. They testify almost exclusively on behalf of the prosecution. As a result, their impartiality is replaced by a viewpoint colored brightly with prosecutorial bias. And then this guy, William Thompson, a professor of criminalistics at the University of California, Irvine, agreed with Starts by saying, The culture of such places run by police or agents just is often just inimical to good scientific practice. The reward system, promotion incentives, in the end, your paycheck is based on successful prosecutions, not good science. That's scary. Right. Yeah. It's like, how many notches can you get on your belt versus like, how well do you do the job? Yeah. Like how compliant or like how complicit, what's the word? It's like both. Like to, to help appease these people that will help you move up in your career. So prosecutors review and rate expert testimony. This can help an analyst with an eye for promotion. When we look at Thomas's resume, he spent 11 years obviously climbing the ladder in law enforcement. So when a prosecutor and your superior say they see a pointy bloodstain, it makes sense that he changed the report. It makes sense that he wants to shore up the change theory. The man wants to move up. So Gerald Thomas has fascinated me from the beginning. I thought I'd seen something that at the time he remained employed with the SBI. I tried to figure it out. How could someone who'd made those egregious illegal mistakes be still employed? Not just employed, actually, but by April of 2010, Thomas had been promoted to the assistant director of field services of the SBI. So he's head bozo? <laughs> well, he's assistant director assistant of field services. So just a division in the SBI. But it is a promotion. Yeah. But wait, wait, it gets better. In December of 2016, a reporter from the Winston-Salem Journal wrote that he couldn't find whether or not Gerald Thomas was still working for the SBI. Honestly, I ran into the exact same problem. I couldn't find anything. But on occasion, I'd Google because, well, I mean. Is there a guy that... Wears glasses and a funny nose. No. Sort of looks like him. No, (laughs) but that's good. But no, because in October of 2018, I Googled and I hit pay dirt. And Gerald Thomas was promoted to the deputy director of the entire fucking SBI. Congratulations, Gerald Thomas. That seems like a poor choice. Yeah. Well, at least he's not at crime scenes anymore. Oh, he's just a bureaucrat. Yeah. Just making the policy now. Just a different version of fucker. Well, I mean, politicians are liars. Yeah. So, I mean, he's got got that on his resume. Yes. (laughs) Literally. Check. (laughs) Good job, The first accurate thing on the resume. Yes. (laughs) Professional liar. Great job, team. Allegedly. It should also be noted that while there was an investigation of the lab's training and internal practices... The results of this investigation was not made public as far as Detective Priya can tell in her research. And that means that the necessary changes were also not made public. 
For an organization that is ostensibly there for the public, this seems pretty bad practice to not be fully transparent, especially in a time when there's a huge distrust of the it entire seems organization. Seems to be part of the course, though. <laughs> I, yes, exactly. So, as you may recall, after all this shit was going down, the AG called for an audit of the lab. And after five, a five-month investigation on August 18, 2010, the two former FBI agents, Chris Wecker and Michael Wolf, released their results. Finally. Mm. Keith, are you sitting down? This is really important and terrifying. Oh, God. Okay. Out of over 15,000 cases they examined, they found that the SBI crime lab withheld misreported or distorted evidence in more than 230 cases. Come on! <laughs> and we'll be delving into those effed up cases and more on the next episode oh. of Effed Up. Everything's messed up. Why is everything terrible? Oh, my God. Thank you so much for listening. At the end of each episode, we do like to highlight the work being done for justice reform, science, and the prevention of wrongful convictions and provide information on where, if you're as fucking pissed off at hearing these stories as Keith is, and as we are in telling them, you can throw some money or possibly find volunteer opportunities or whatever you can do. So... For some research in this episode, Priya spoke. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, like in like the 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 state of the world now, like we can all make more of a fucking effort than we do. Like yeah. myself included. Like you know, we're we're all busy. We all live really busy lives. But there's like shitty things happening in the world, and if we all take five minutes to donate or yeah. spread the word or volunteer or something then maybe collectively, like, we can fix some of the shitty things that are happening in the world. Mm -hmm. Instead of being passive. Instead of going, well, it's not happening to me. Because you never know, it could happen to you also. And even if it doesn't happen to you, it shouldn't happen to the people it's happening to. Okay, so exactly what Keith said. And to that, for some of the research in this episode, I spoke with Brad Bannon, the defense attorney in Kirk's case, Kirk Turner's case. So if you have money to spare, he would love for you to help support the North Carolina Advocates for Justice, which is a nonpartisan association of legal professionals dedicated to protecting people's rights through community education and advocacy. You can find them at www.ncaj.com. And as always, we'd love for you to join us on our social media, where we'll be posting links to our research, photos, and videos on our Facebook page. You can find us on all platforms, Facebook, Insta, and Twitter at Podcast. That's E-F-F-E-D-U-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. If you need to reach us via email, it's the same deal. FDUPPodcast at gmail.com. And finally, we don't like to shill for ourselves, but this podcast isn't about us. Fucked Up or Effed Up is about helping other people, but in order to do that, we need to get the word out. So if you have a moment to spare, please rate us on whatever app you use to listen to us. It will help us become more visible and help us elevate the voices of the victims and survivors who have been impacted. If you have more than a moment and want to help us get the word out, please tell people, share links. The more people know about these injustices, the more changes that can be made. Let's create a fucking social injustice league and change the fucked up world. Effed up. Yeah. Okay. Done. Effed Up is executive produced by myself, Priya Hubbard, and Jessica Borges. Research and story is by me, 
Priya Hubbard. Executive Inquisitor is Keith Burke. Episode recaps written by Brandy Abbott. Social media hall monitors Brandy Abbott and Paloma Diaz. Cover art is by Allie Kelly. You can find her work at Allie Kelly Illustrations on Instagram. That's A L L I E K E L L E Y Illustrations on Instagram. Our music is composed by Allegra Borges, executive in charge of support, Jeff Berg. Technical consultant, Randy Maringer of Maringer and Unger. On air distractions provided by Nima and Newman, aka Newman. Additional investigations are provided by cat detectives. Monsieur Hercule Poirot, and Captain Hastings. Special thanks to Marilyn Miller and Brad Bannon. Science, science. 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 Okay, That's a throwback so, to last week. <laughs>